Before we jump into today's episode, let's give a shout out to our sponsor, Jane, a clinic management software and EMR. Whether you're just starting to do your research or you've been contemplating switching your software for a while now, the Jane team understands that the process can feel intimidating. That's why their goal is to provide you with all the onboarding resources you need to make the switch as soon as possible. Jane offers a personalized call to set up your account, a free data import, and a variety of online resources to get you up and running quickly. And if you ever need a helping hand along the way, you'll have access to unlimited phone, email, and chat support included in your Jane subscription. If you're interested in learning more, book a one-on-one demo at jane.app switch. And if you decide to make the switch, don't forget to use the code HEAL1MO, that's HEAL1MO, at sign up to receive a one-month grace period on your new Jane account. Welcome to season eight of Interdisciplinary. We are going to take it on. We're not going to take it off. We're going to take it on. (laughs) Season eight, we're going to be tackling the really fascinating topic of code switching and all the things it does and doesn't mean. We've got some exciting guests lined up. And as usual, we're going to dive right into it with uh, all the truth telling and the question asking. And um, yeah, thanks for being here. And we are so excited to share news with you that we are uh, proud to partly be here because Carrie Jordan, tell us more. Uh, because this, the, what I'm calling this season of the switch is uh, brought to you by our new sponsor, ABMP. ABMP, Associated Bodywork and Massage Professionals is proud to sponsor the interdisciplinary podcast from HealWell. Membership with ABMP offers comprehensive liability insurance, along with meaningful resources and support that make a difference in your career, including free CE in the ABMP CE Education Center, quick reference apps like their five-minute muscles, which is awesome, and pocket pathology, also awesome, pocket suite scheduling and booking software, and the inspirational massage and bodywork magazine. Discover why members expect more and get more at abmp.com. And now, be sure to check out ABMP's cool podcast. I have a client who with Ruth Werner and ABMP's just podcast with Darren Buford and Kristen Coverley. Good, good stuff. That's awesome. And I'm pretty sure the reason ABMP has agreed to sponsor interdisciplinary is at least 50% because of the puns. Totally. Sure. And we will not disappoint you in this season. We'll be bringing the truth. And bring in puns. Corey, you want to start us off? Uh, yes, since uh, code switching is a sort of grammatically related thing, we have a grammatically related pun. So what's the difference between a cat and a comma? Oh, it's a One t- has claws at the end of the pause, and the other is a pause at the end of a claw. <laughs> <laughs> I just frightened an actual cat. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, bonkers. <laughs> like it (laughs) yeah so you guys tell me what code switching is oh my goodness Uh, yeah let's just get right into it um (laughs) um we you know we've we've had a lot of like discussions about this right um before we got on here and i've been discussing this with one of our guests um who will be here in a couple of weeks I think of code switching as um, not just language, but the conscious choice of how you present and what you, what aspects of yourself you show, um, largely around safety, really, um, cultural safety. So it's something that, that is, is very, um, I think of as something that, that um, people are very aware of and good at in communities that have been historically marginalized. Um, so I wonder what you all think. Um, I, I read six Wikipedia pages. Sweet. So, so you know all about it then. Well, I at least know what Wikipedia is willing to tell me about it, which is certainly not going to be everything. But so um, two things. One is from our darling Laura, who, um, as we like to say, actually works outside of their apartments. 
Um, so she's running around and not here, but she did leave us some cultural anthropology notes, which I will now relay to you. So she said, um, so she she literally ran away from her computer and pulled out a cultural anthropology book and then wrote a summary for us. And this is her summary. So she said, um, in the 1960s, cult- code switching um, meant speech community identities. In the 1980s, it meant nation state identities, which is a nationalism process that's probably pretty unfavorable. In the 1990s, it became multicultural inter-ethnic identity, um, particularly of urban minority communities. So sounds like the 90s is when the definition we are currently edging towards started. And then in the 2000s, it became a hybrid identity um, and people use code switching to navigate diverse cultures. So that's cultural anthropology code switching. Linguistic code switching. Um, so <laughs> I don't know how many of you know any linguists personally, how many of our listeners may be linguists. Linguists really like details and they like really tiny details and they like them a lot and they keep track of all of them. And it's a thing that I um, am very impressed and uh, intimidated by. Quite so, I hear. Don't what? even. <laughs> I said they're quite cunning, I hear. <laughs> So code switching is also known as language alteration, style shifting, and style matching. And the basic definition that was given was an alternation between two or more language or language varieties in a single conversation. Um, One of the interesting things that was mentioned is that code switching often happens in the middle of sentences and not between sentences. So like you switch mid-thought almost. Um, It was considered like a substandard use of language in the 40s and 50s. Of course it was. It's considered totally normal since the 1980s and very interesting to lots of people. Um, It refers to several things. So one of them is um, what are called stable informal languages like Spanglish. Um, So that's a code switching language. Also um, Taglish is in that category. It's used for switching um, among several parts of speech. So you can switch dialects, which is like how you say words. They're generally regional, right? We all think of like Southern accents and British accents and it's all English and you can understand all of it. It's just, there's, that's where we get into the teeny tiny vowel details. Um, styles, which is a variation of speech. It had a really complicated definition that I'm not going to go into because it would take us 45 minutes. Um, but that's also a vowel, like a really, really specific vowel sound alteration. And then register which is used for a particular purpose or situation. Like you don't speak the same to a person as you speak to a crowd when you're public speaking. That's a register Mm -hmm. change. Um, At least most of us don't. Uh, So the other piece of it was called um, convergence and divergence. So the quote was, there exists an interactional complexity whereby people can converge some features to meet social needs but diverge on others for identity management. So you might diverge on your accent, but you might converge on your vocabulary in order to be understood by the other person. Um, And all of this has to do with linguistic priming. And priming is a crazy cognitive idea that we should totally talk about someday. But it's basically setting up somebody's brain to make a choice, um, probably in your favor. So it's like, giving people hints as to what you want them to do and people pick those up consciously or subconsciously and then react. Um, This I'd like to note is distinct from a pigeon language. Pigeons are really cool, which is when two people who do not speak a common language make a third language in order to communicate, which is a really neat thing, but it's not code switching. Um, So the reasons to code switch, I thought was probably the coolest part of this whole thing. So, Here's the list of reasons they gave. Um, The topic you're talking about, quoting something, solidarity, gratitude, clarification, group identities, to soften or strengthen a command, um, lexical need, which is like if you have an idiom in your language and you like you can't figure out how to translate it, you'll just say it in your language. Um, If it's unconscious, so when you're frightened or excited, generally things come out differently, Um, to fit in, to get something or to say something in secret. So it, it's this like, it's a dance, right? And it takes two to tango. And in all of the things that I read in my six Wikipedia pages, um, there was this underlying assumption that everybody is participating in this conversation. So I think the big huh. problem comes in when somebody decides they don't like to dance. 
and refuses and stands in the middle of the floor and makes everybody work around them, which is where we get things like people saying that um, African-American vernacular English, which is also known as Ebonics, is not a language, which it absolutely is, um, or that you need to alter the way you speak in order to work into spaces of more professionalism, I guess, with huge quotes around that, um, or deciding that your way of communicating is the best way of communicating and everybody should conform to your standards. So I think code switching is an incredibly beautiful, amazing human thing that we do to try and understand each other. And there's a lot of back and forth until there's no back and forth and then it sucks. Yeah, this is so interesting because I think, Rebecca, I would say that when we first started talking about doing a season about code switching, I came to it from the same place that you are, which is code switching is a fear response, a safety uh, tool, right? Mm -hmm. Um, And that when the people I know who are people of color or trans folks, like people who actively talk about their code switching, Mm they're usually talking about it in a way of protecting themselves and a, or and or hiding some part of themselves not as showing a part of themselves which i think is really really a fascinating way of thinking about code switching and the other thing that what you were talking about Corey made me think about is in terms of priming that linguistically of course priming is a big thing but that there's a lot of uh, nonverbal communication that is priming as well. And that it's really, really common, particularly for people who are popular and well-liked by lots of different people, um, that they sort of start to mirror physical and vocal affect of the person they're talking to, because then the person perceives you as like them (laughs) and everybody sort of loves a mirror. And so that's a really interesting piece too, because to me that that feels like code switching as well, right? If I if I adapt the way I'm holding my body or the inflection that I'm using on certain words, or as you said, even an accent or picking up words that you use that I don't quote unquote regularly use in my everyday conversation. That is sort of that feels more like dancing, right? But it also feels sort of icky and tricky to me. Yes. Yes. I'm I'm aware of having this whole suite of reactions um, that are, first of all, like, I'm so grateful. Um, first of all, Corey, that you exist in general, but that you exist and you will um, and are willing to do all of this, this research and um, education of and for us. Um, and uh, I mean, I think this speaks to to something that I had brought up with you all a little while ago in our in our Slack channel about there's the definition of code switching, and there's the practice um, and the perception mm. of the practice. Mm-hmm. And I think that that my perception of the practice has been formed in large part by the podcast called Oddly Enough Code Switch, um, <laughs> which is a podcast all about race. Right. Um, in America. Um, and I am, I'm aware of having like that kind of resistance. Like we, we can't, not that anybody is trying to do this, but we cannot minimize the, um, harmful effect that the need for code switching can have, um, you know, on, on care, on, uh, our ability to be humans with each other. Well, so Cal, I want to ask you at the risk of sort of putting you on the spot uh, as, as a non-binary person and as my non-binary person, I feel like I get to watch you do what I think of as code switching a lot. And I feel, I want to hear about your experience of code switching. Do you, first of all, do you think of it as code switching? Does it feel like code switching to you? And I'm, does it feel like a safety tool? Does it feel like dancing? Um, I want to know all the things. Just lay it on me. Okay. Uh, I'm, I'm, not really, uh, I'm not really sure it's possible to put me on the spot in a way that would make me sad. 
Um, so here we are. Uh, I um, it, It's interesting because, you know, I did a, a little bit of research myself and I was looking at um, the uh, psychologist Beverly Tatum, uh, who wrote Why Are All the Black Kids Sitting Together in the Cafeteria, um, says that um, code switching is divided into two types, uh, language-based and culture-based. And language and culture are not two things. And I, I find that fascinating that, um, you know, a, a published person who has thought deeply about this would want to sort of make it this binary thing. Um, but, um, and I'm also, I'm, I'm working my way through this book of essays right now called Language and Social Justice in Practice. Thank you, Rebecca, for the tip on that. And it, in almost every essay, there is a direct pointing to the reality that words are not objective conveyors of shared meaning, that words are highly subjective. And our understanding, I mean, I love Corey's big air bunnies around professionalism, right? That so much of code switching relies on these loaded words and our attempts to fit within them. And that on some level, I feel like, I'll look forward to being challenged on this, but I feel like on some level, all code switching is about deciding whose comfort to center. Mm. And it does come back to, is it for safety? Is it for advancement? Is it for understanding? But like, how can I adjust myself in a way that either centers my own comfort or centers another person's comfort? And um, I think like, I, when I walk into a women's restroom, particularly like in a in a rest area or like a big bathroom where there are a lot of people, I, it's hilarious, right? I walk like a woman would walk. What does that even mean? Right? Like, I don't know, but I know that I don't walk in a feminine way if left to my own devices. And I want to signal, I smile bigger. I do my best to look really friendly if people do make eye contact with me because I just, I, I don't, and it is to avoid helpers telling me I'm in the wrong bathroom or just people being involved in my visit to the bathroom. I'm trying to avoid that in any way possible. I am very lucky. I have not had anything that I would call dangerous uh, happen to me in a restroom setting or in like a gendered type setting. Um, but I just want to go to the bathroom. I don't want people to be checking me out and being like, oh, the men's room is over there. I'm like, great, I can read. I mean, not that everyone can read, but um, I, I don't, I don't need your help. I got this. And, um, you know, we were at the garden store the other day and, and Carrie had asked the person a question and he said, Oh, you know, we don't have that. Um, and then he came out of the door as I was coming and said, Oh, excuse me, sir. And I said, Oh, no problem. And Oh gosh, ma'am. I'm sorry, ma'am. And I was like, it's, it's all the same to me. Like, don't, it's fine. But I said it in a deeper voice. And I, there was a moment where I was like, maybe I can, can convince him that sir is correct. Um, because everything else in his very cursory assessment of what cues were triggered by my appearance and movement went into the mail column and that my voice ruined it. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, I, I think I, I do that regularly in, in that space. And I act, I guess, gayer when I'm with openly, overtly gay people who are really embracing their fabulousness. Um, so yeah, I think, I think that's something that I absolutely do. And certainly in the way that I dress in a like professional setting, um, and probably even just on a daily basis, I think we all code switch, but yeah, I'm, I'm really aware of the guardrails of gender and how to, when, when, and how to hang over them to appear in a way that will be least uncomfortable for other people. And I guess for me. Because if they're comfortable, then I don't have to talk to them about who and what I am. I would like to share that I had a mental image of you inline skating down the guardrail. <laughs> that seems right. <laughs> well, you know, that is the hardest part of rollerblading. Is telling your parents, telling your parents you're gay. <laughs> um, yeah. yeah, but I, I do think that it, it is inspired by a desire for comfort, perhaps my own, perhaps a person I'm interacting with, but that connection feels comforting. And like, you know, you, you were 
a couple of the comments that you all were making, we're talking about the desire to do that. And when we do look at sort of racial settings um, or racism in settings, which let's say the setting is planet Earth. Um, I remember reading an article in the Harvard Business Review a few years ago where they uh, surveyed 300 college-educated Black people who were in professional settings and sort of asked them about their experience of code switching. Why do they do it? What are the benefits? What are the drawbacks? And um, it reminded me of reading about Arlene Geronimus's weathering hypothesis and this idea that you know, she doesn't call it code switching in the paper, but that it's an additional piece of constantly being aware, like many of the people who were surveyed regarded it as hypervigilance. And I think that, you know, while she was looking specifically at race, I think you can look at any minoritized population and know that we're really good at reading the room and sort of understanding and, and possibly assuming informed by stereotypes and things like that. Like I get 30 miles south of where I live in Arlington, Virginia. And I assume that I'm going to get some pushback for the way that I look because of my stories about the South and also because of my experiences there, but that anyone who is well-practiced at being a minority knows how to do this and is really aware in a way that is ultimately taxing on the nervous system. Yeah. I think that's the, that's the thing that I was kind of getting hung up on. Um, because, you know, as, as, um, I'm a straight cisgender white woman who has a lot of privilege in this country, like, do I get to say that I'm code switching? I know that my behavior changes depending on the situation. Um, but most of the United States is organized for my comfort. (laughs) Mm -hmm. I mean, really. Um, so it's, it's, it, it's challenging to think about the language and like what, who gets to own and carry forward this language and make it mean whatever it's going to mean 10 years from now, because things change. You know? um, well, and it's designed for your comfort as long as you're feminine enough. True. As you fit the lady model enough. True. You know, that like, certainly there's embedded advantage in being a white cisgendered woman. And, Mm -hmm. but yeah, I mean, I think this is, this is where we have to be careful that we don't get into a hierarchy, but where we also recognize that it is, you know, more pervasive for different minoritized communities than others. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Cause I was having an interesting conversation with um, Harry, who's going to be on in a couple of weeks from now about this um and he's a black man and we were talking about code switching and and it took him saying no you code switch all the time you can you can say that you code switch for me to be like wait do i code switch is that a thing (laughs) do you know when you do it well i since i've just learned that i do um (laughs) (laughs) I know I do in, this was actually another thing because most of my work and most of my social life is primarily in spaces that are um, majority female or feminine. Um, then I, yeah, I think I do like out in the wider world, anytime that it's a majority sort of masculine energy space, definitely definitely there's change i I couldn't describe it yet because i don't have enough awareness um but yeah when i see my family because there's a portion of my family that is appalachian Mm -hmm. Um, i I, I want you all to know what you didn't see was all four of us just like oh yeah boy (laughs) when you're with your family that's what i was gonna say the the family code switch we could do an entire episode about family code switching right yeah (laughs) yeah yeah well and it's interesting too that part of the country where i live um is in kentucky it's not in the appalachian part of kentucky it's in a more um urban area um a bigger city such as it is and there are people who migrate there from Appalachia and having inter- interacted with people who have those roots and watching them have to code switch 
you know, for the, for the area. Um, and it's, it's, it's fascinating. What strikes me too, is the creative intelligence that it takes to know when it's right to pull out. Cause it's Appalachian language is very colorful. It's very metaphorical. Um, you know, when to pull that out that will charm someone versus when it will make someone think you dumb hit, you know, or, or whatever. Yeah. Well, and I, I think it was you, Corey, who's in some of our preliminary conversations, maybe just even our written like Slack channel conversations about this, that we also want to be really clear as we work our way through this season that code switching isn't always quote unquote bad. That like, even when we talk about code switching with our families, like some people are like, oh, like my relationship with my family is fraught. And so code switching means I leave whole parts of me out and blah, 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 blah. But we all have a language we speak with our families, even if we have a really close knit tight family that we have a really what we would call positive relationship with that you, there are groups of people that you, you know, when I go play soccer on the weekend, like we have whole sentences that consist of single words and five people move because one person yells a word and they all move in different directions. Because if you're this player, this word means this. And if you're this player, this word means this. And so it, it is functionally valuable and it also upholds systems of oppression. We'll be right back. Do you want to change the world? So do we. Join HealWell this September in Arlington, Virginia, when we host the event to remember. There will be classes and conversations. There will be old friends and new ones. And yes, there will be dancing. Come to HealWell Homecoming and let's keep this ball rolling. Well, and it does... I. I am so enamored with the idea of it as a dance because of course the dancing can be for so many things right <laughs> and we use the phrase I'm dancing around that topic right in a way that is negative it means you're not you know coming at it in a, a straightforward way and yet Dancing can be romantic and beautiful. Dancing can be a thing you do with large groups of people or that you do alone or that you do with just a single other person. And I think this is uh, this is such an interesting uh, analogy or metaphor for code switching. And it is interesting to me. And I'm so curious about, for all people, the difference between conscious code switching and unconscious code switching. Oh, yes. Corey, you there was the front. a sentence about that. <laughs> there is a huge debate about that, actually, about whether or not it is purely conscious or it is um, a little bit of both. So there's um, I didn't write their name down. I apologize. <laughs> Academia person. Sorry. Uh, that absolutely says that it is a fully controlled thing that we do. It's totally oh, conscious. No way. And no I way. was like, I was like, I, I think there's a lot of definitions for conscious. Right. Um. <laughs> And how conscious is something that like you do and then realize, does that mean it's fully conscious? Like, I don't think it does. So I think that people deploy it on purpose for sure. But I think people also, you know, and if you are in a situation where you have to be that good at it for safety reasons, like you're going to deploy it right quick without even thinking. So, yeah. So huge debate, Carrie, way to bring it up. It makes me think about how, you know, many people in the social justice world have started to move away from unconscious bias to call it implicit bias, because it's not exactly unconscious, but it's also not exactly a willful choice. And so, you know, it's, yeah, I think it's a dicey thing. And certainly, like you said, there are times when you're like, oh, I'm going to put this on because it's going to be charming, keep me safe, whatever it might be. But um, Carrie recently pointed out to me that when I talked to my ex-mother-in-law, she has a very specific addiction. And when I speak with her, I just slip into it. And it, I, she's like, why do you talk like her when you guys talk on the phone? And I was like, what are you talking about? And I was like, oh, I totally do that. Like from the minute she says, hello, I just slip into this kind of interestingly 
sing song. Like I can't even describe it, but it, a it, distinctly it, uncal way of speaking is how I would describe it. Yeah. <laughs> well, and I will say that in some of the research I did, it said that people who can carry a tune are more susceptible to accents and language type code switching that is about like matching vernacular. Mimicry, yeah. Mm -hmm. Whatever that's worth. Yeah, so that's a couple of things. I um I'm I want to push back on uncal because <laughs> like it's 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 clearly in there or it could come out, but maybe like undaily experience. I know what you mean. Yeah. Um but I wonder if that's part of where the the potential uh, for harm comes from when we think of code switch as something that's um, disingenuous. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and it makes me think of another um, semi-conscious, I would say, and 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 again to go back to this mirroring, uh, and that. And again, sorry, Cal, it's you're you're my example for all of this. It's because you're so popular and beloved. Um, <laughs> um, but Cal has a very good friend who is a black woman. And this is Cal also, when Cal talks to this black woman, Cal talks like a black woman, or like, you know, quote unquote, like a black woman. Cal starts to talk the way this person talks. And I have an incredible cringy response to this because I feel like as a white person, you're not allowed to talk like that, right? That this will be perceived as mockery or or that there's just some rule about you're not allowed to appropriate this way of talking. Cal's friend clearly adores it and feel, I, I think it appears to me, it is part of what she loves about talking to you and that she feels, she doesn't feel mocked or appropriated that this feels like you guys are speaking the same language or dancing the same dance together. And I wonder, are you aware of it? <laughs> you know, do you feel it happen? Do you put it, you, where does this fall in the implicit slash unconscious slash conscious realm? And do you have, do you have a similar sort of fear as a white person that I have about it? Well, I think this is a curious thing that I'm really interested in all of you weighing in on because I do not, I do not worry when I do that with her. And, uh, you know, most recently, sometimes she'll send very long messages and I will read them out loud to Carrie because they're usually really funny and she'll write them in vernacular black English. And so I read them that way because it would be weird to not read them that way. It seems like, um, and I would never do that just out in the world. Like I am aware that there's like a boundary and that this is about, and honestly, even when I'm talking with her live, I don't know that I slip into it as much as when we're texting. Um, and so I, I'll just leave that out there for, I'm aware there's a boundary and I'm aware that like this doesn't fly everywhere. And I feel sort of invited in by the way that, the two of us talk and that she's sort of saying like, yeah, I hear you because you're talking in this way. And um, yeah, it's a, it's a confusing situation. So one of the reasons to code switch that was listed was quoting. So I think that's what you're doing. Um, and it's a person that you know really well. So you quote them accurately. Mm -hmm. um, one of the questions that I came across was the phrase and the title of African-American vernacular English and what if you speak it, and like I said, it's a legit language, um, what if you speak it and you're not Black? So I, um, growing up, I had two stepsisters that spoke it fluently and were white. Um, and we were in separate school districts that were not that far apart, and that wasn't something I learned, and that was absolutely something they learned. And um, they would actually teach me about it, like in a way that me at 11 was like, this is so weird. I have no idea what you're talking about sort of way. Um, but I remember my oldest stepsister telling me that if a guy hollered at her on a bus, which I say in the whitest way possible right now, um, <laughs> that she would understand that he was just trying to have a conversation and like, wouldn't be upset 
by the way he approached her because it's totally normal. And me, the 11 year old was like, I can't imagine anyone, let alone a black guy I don't know, or a guy I don't know, or anybody I don't know talking to me on a bus. Right. And like my entire being was like, that's never going to happen ever in my life ever. Um, so as an 11 year old, I totally missed the point, but <laughs> <laughs> I have more of the point now. So one of the academic questions was, is it African-American vernacular English? If it's more than African-Americans speaking it. And like, as much as we try and make really hard lines around segregation, it doesn't generally work that way. So I don't know what the answer to that one is, but it was an interesting question. Well, and I personally, one of the places that I really struggle to understand completely, or at least to understand where it does and doesn't do harm is around cultural appropriation. And I feel like this dips its toes into that space where, you know, I don't, I absolutely don't want to be disrespectful. And where is the line between, you know, like if I went to my friend's like family reunion, I don't, I don't know actually how I would speak, you know, knowing that she and her family have this vernacular when they meet, like. If I come in there, will I slip into that? Will I be really careful not to do that? And what would, the underlying question is, what would endear me to them, mm -hmm. right? Like, I want, to, I want them to welcome me. I want to feel like I am part of this family. So do I do that by saying, I'm not actually part of this family and, you know, being stiff and, you know, all the ways that I might normally speak in a quote professional setting, or do I just slip into like, this is how you guys talk, this is how I'm going to talk, and that's it. Well, I think for me, and when I, when I, I, I want to own that when I was pointing out how I cringe when I hear this happen, I, for me, I feel like this is, this is my white lady guilt talking, right? This is my, I, I need to be punished. And so there are things that can't be mine. Uh, that I'm not allowed to touch or do, right? Because that's, that's, I'm not allowed to. And this is my signaling that like, I'm a good white lady, right? I, I'm obeying the rules and I'm like, <laughs> you know, I'm, I'm so aware of my, so aware of my privilege and my um, history of white violence that I'm now doing this weird backbending to sort of d display that. To people. Um, and so again, it's its own code switch, right? It's its own bizarre way of being. Um, and so I think it's just a, I just want to own that too, that this is, that we're, that I'm doing it in the other direction. <laughs> I'm still trying to signal. I'm still trying to do the right thing that will endear me to this, this whomever is in front of me. Same. <laughs> I mean, really, yeah. Um, I actually have a question for you all. Um, have have you ever noticed someone like actively code switching in your presence because of your presence? And what was that like? Yes. Tell me about it. So my main form, I think, of code switching has to do with um, the level Oh, how not to say it and sound like a jerk. Um, the academic level of people that I am speaking with. So, so the amount I'm, of formal schooling that someone might sure, have. yeah, and like, okay. and at what, like, those Wikipedia articles are <clears throat> way high up there, and they love their jargon. And I would never like read that aloud to somebody. I would take it and be like, "How can I make this actual English for you to understand?" And that's a different sort of switch. And I do it. Um, in order to be non-threatening because it intimidates people and then we get nowhere and that's not helpful. And then they don't like me and I don't want them to not like me. Um, but I have seen people try and like step up because they also think that I expect them to be somewhere that they don't normally like habitate at. So, um, I've seen students do it. I've seen um, other massage therapists do it. People who like kind of know me or think they know me and they'll try and like, like up, I guess it's like upping their game, but it's a, it's not a good game. It's a bad game. <laughs> I see it in the hospitals 
all the time. And I just, you know, I, I just happened to be at Children's Hospital yesterday, and I haven't been there in a long time. And when I'm in the hospital, I'm a contractor and I'm a massage therapist. And so my story is that I am not high in the hierarchy of people who are walking around in the hospital. And uh, I work very hard to kind of smile and acknowledge everybody there who's like, who's got a badge on <laughs> because I, I, I want them to like me. I want them to treat me like I belong there. I have my story about, you know, especially yesterday, I hadn't been in the hospital in a really long time. I was worried about doing things wrong. And when I smiled or waved or said hello to people who were um, in environmental services, um, who are the people who clean rooms and do things like that and are often people of color, I, I twice just in this time I was there yesterday came around a corner where two people who were in environmental services were talking to each other. And when they saw me and I smiled or when I passed them and said, hello, everything about them changed the way they were holding their bodies. And they acknowledged me and smiled at me and said hello to me, but in different tones in in a different type of voice. Um, and it was very interesting because again, inside of me, of course, I wanted, I felt the urge to turn around and be like, no, 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 you don't have to do that with me. Uh, <laughs> I don't belong here either. Or I feel like weirded out about like whoever's, you know, but it, it definitely felt like, um, it definitely felt like it was about race and socioeconomic class and just the absolute hierarchy that happens in a hospital of what, what is your job? What color are your scrubs? What color is your badge? Where you are in the caste system. Mm -hmm. Exactly. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. It, that question is interesting to me because I started thinking about it and I was thinking about like how our reactions, particularly if you are or appear to be in a group that is, has been assigned a caste with more power mm -hmm. in the society, um, how that that can trigger this whole cascade of, um, you know, emotion and reactivity, the end result of which is a complete loss of the uh, opportunity for meaningful connection. And I, I think that that's definitely another thing that we're going to explore this season um, with our guests and among ourselves. But um, that's like the idea of code switching as a dance. I love that. I love the idea of being connected in that way of being like separate, but together and creating together. I think that's a beautiful idea. And I don't know that it works that way all the time. Um, well, I'm, I'm curious if anyone has studied and I'm sure that this would be uh, setting specific, but how often is code switching bi-directional? Because I think this is really the issue is that like, there's no inherent harm in trying to create common ground. But when the creation of common ground relies on one of the parties disengaging from their authentic selves or hiding parts of what are true about them, I think that's where we get into a situation where you're like, oh, this is actually maybe not so great. And definitely when we're talking about healthcare relationships and things where you know a black patient comes to see a white provider and doesn't mention certain things because of their assumptions, because of this, the switching that they may or may not even be aware they're doing. And that provider doesn't learn important things because they just plain get left out. And, you know, I think that that is clearly happening in lots of professional quote unquote environments. And I'm sure we'll be exploring that as well. And it reminds me uh, about, there's a, a kind of a, a wave happening. I don't know if it will get depressed and really create change, but that the grant application process in the world of philanthropy is a really um, exclusionary code switching process. And that when you write a grant application, you are expected to kind of write in almost an obfuscating kind of way, in a way that sort of if you're quote unquote, not smart enough, you won't understand this proposal. And like you are demonstrating to me, grant applicant, 
that you can speak this ridiculously overblown language of academia because that is where you will have to function. And I can't in good conscience fund you if you can't swim in these waters. And in the social justice and equity world right now, there's a lot of pushing back against how onerous these processes are. And that in addition to just requiring pages and pages of documentation and, and things that are taking away from the actual work that these organizations are doing, they're still very much prioritizing people who are comfortable in using standard American English, quote, white English, and, and that extra tier of academic English. And so where are we also being required to code switch or not even bothering to engage because code switching is expected in environments like that? I always thought it was interesting that um, grant writer is a job and like not even necessarily attached to a group or some groups, but as an independent person, you write grants because you understand all of the teeny tiny details that need to happen in order for that to work. And it always struck me as exactly like teaching to the test. Like somebody has learned how to take that test. Absolutely. To perfection and now gets paid buco bucks to write the test to perfection. Yeah. And that's a really exclusive thing to get to and that's a lot of years of school and like a lot of time to do exactly one thing that seems like a waste and interestingly what a lot of philanthropists and organizations are trying to do to sort of fix this problem is that they are uh, doing in-person interviews uh, instead of these written applications but again, I feel curious about like, so who's doing the interviewing and who's, what are the questions that are being asked in this interview? And so I think it's a, well, it's great idea to eliminate these ridiculously long written applications. I wonder what sort of changes we'll actually see or not see as a result of these interview applications. Well, and I think there's, oh, go ahead, Corey. Um, I think there's a similar push going on in academic research writing. Mm. Um, I was talking to Nancy Steinberg, who is going to be a guest for us um, at a future symposia. And she was like, even professionals don't like to read jargon. Like they won't do it. They will not read it. And that's how you're supposed to write an article. So why are we writing articles that even like people high up in this field don't want to read because they're unreadable? And it's absolutely gatekeeping that they're written that way, because oh, yes. if you're not an academic, you just feel lost and you're not actually going to gather that information. I mean, and when we're talking about we've been talking a lot in-house about implementation science and sort of how do you take data from a study and turn it into practice? And if you're writing it up in a language nobody else understands, but the people who did the study, that might explain that 19 year curve to, <laughs> from data to implementation. And I, I think about the, you know, there was something that both of you just said that sort of led me to this idea of when we decide we can't understand. And Rebecca had pointed to this earlier as well with, you know, there is quite a bit of data about accents that people, the words are there, but because the accent is Asian or because the accent is quote, hillbilly, certain brains, certain biases make you actually decide that you don't know what this person is saying. And when I was working, I just submitted a pretty onerous grant application. And I remember I had very smart academic people review it because I wanted to make sure that I was saying the things the right way. And there were a couple of places where I am not a person with a PhD. I don't even have a master's degree. I have learned by accident throughout my life. And a number of places in this application, the person who was reviewing it would say, there's actually a word for this thing that you just used like two and a half sentences or three sentences to describe. It's this. And I'm like, but I just, I want you to know what I'm going to do. <laughs> and they're like, well, right. But the grant, the grant people are going to want to see that, you know, what blah, blah is. And that, and so I feel like those of us who are bumbling around out here by comparison, we are in some ways still coming upon these things that are well-held academic concepts. So it's not like you 
have to have that formal training that Rebecca referred to, to understand the complexity of systems or how to deliver on outcomes. But there's still very much sort of a, a, a perceived knowledge paywall that you have to, you have to pay to, to get in. And how do we, how do, I mean, I think by calling it out is how we start to change it, but um, you bet your ass I changed it in my grant, right? I was like, oh, I kind of like the way I wrote it, but if it means that I'm going to get the grant, then I can do the good work. And so then I can fight the battle when I get in the door. But, you know, this is how movements are, right? Like, oh, sorry, gay women, you can't come. We're fighting for just all women right now. We'll fight for you later. And, you know, how do we, how do we blow it up all at once in an effective way? <laughs> but you guys, this is how we've always done it. So it's obviously best. <laughs> My least favorite phrase. <laughs> Just following orders. Well, you guys, this is the season of the switch. Season of the switch. Strap yeah. in, open your minds, get ready to dance. That's right. Send your questions, suggestions, and feedback to podcast at healwell.org. Big thanks to ABMP. Big thanks to you guys for being here. And uh... and a big, big thanks to our Patreons. If you want to see some extra cool, fun content, hear some extra cool things, get your episodes early and more, you can start for a mere $1 a month at patreon.com slash interdisciplinary. Interdisciplinary is produced by Healwell. Our theme music is by Harry Pickens. New episodes are available weekly through your favorite podcast outlet. Uh, and you can send us an email at podcast at healwell.org. That's podcast at healwell.org. Thanks for listening. If you enjoy interdisciplinary, you should check out Healwell's new show, The Rub, a podcast about massage therapy. You can click the link in the show notes or find The Rub wherever you listen to podcasts. See you there.